All right, well, good morning, Mercy Hill. It's good to see you again. Happy Sunday to you, and also, I suppose, happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope uh, maybe you'll be able to, to get out, have a little fun, uh, depending upon uh, what's safe, what's open. I know we're all trying to figure that out, but I hope you're able to uh, have a good weekend with family uh, or uh, whoever you may be sheltering in place with. I did want to say uh, a few things here up front. One is just simply... Um, I know we're probably all kind of watching the news, tuning in, hearing about the, you know, the president and other things, talking about uh, churches and this sort of thing. And then we've got the, the state level and the county level talking about these things. Just want to let you know, uh, we will try to keep you posted if we're going to shift in any direction. Um, and we'll just try to keep our ears to uh, the recommendations. And, and we'll be trying to continue to keep the communication flowing towards you. But if you have any questions about this, you can always email us at info at Mercy Hill or even me at, at nick at mercyhillchurch.org. And I'd love to kind of chat with you about it. Um, one other thing I'd say before I begin is, uh, listen, you're going to have to deal with this mug for, I don't know, the next 50 minutes or so. My apologies. As the weeks go on, I'm starting to not know what in the world to do with this hair on top of my head. Uh, I think it was Art Martinez who said uh, in a Facebook post I read, he said, man, you know, you know you need a haircut when your sideburns have sideburns. And I don't even know what that means, but I'm pretty sure I have uh, that going on right now. So if you see me next week, either with a buzzed head or preaching in a hat, uh, don't, don't judge, all right? Don't judge. Let's get into uh, God's Word. Um, we are going to be in Acts 27, and we're just going to read the whole chapter. So this is one kind of coherent story, and I didn't want to break it down or dive in here or there. Just wanted to read it all up front. So uh, you can grab a Bible uh, if you have one in your home, or you can find it on that little side tab if you're tuning into the watch party. They have a little uh, Bible out there for you. But Acts chapter 27 is where, where we're going to be. Now, you remember we're in our Do Not Be Afraid series. Again, I don't know how long this is going to go on, but kind of looking at places in Scripture where God calls his people to not be afraid. And kind of looking at this idea of not being afraid, even in fearsome situations. Uh, and we're looking at that from different angles, kind of saying, why not? And, and, and what should we be doing instead? And how does God meet us in that place? That's kind of what this series has been all about. That's what this text is really going to end up being all about as well. So let's read this. Try to stay focused. Uh, and we'll pray and we'll dive in. But here we go. Acts chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. 
Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury uh, and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it, up, hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. 
Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those that could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. If you made it that far, good job. Um, thanks for paying attention. We will start to unpack some of that. But before we do, let me pray. God, right now, I know that there's a lot of details in there, a lot of stuff to the narrative. But there are certain things that I think you'd highlight for us, and I pray you bring it out this morning. Certain things that you'd want us to know in our own story of shipwreck, as it were, in our own stress, in our own trials, in our own feeling of being lost and adrift at sea, God. I pray that you would use this text to remind us who you are and whose we are. Remind us what you're up to and that you're with us. And show us the way forward, God. So I pray, Holy Spirit, come and be magnified in this time. Come and, and, and illuminate our eyes so we can see Jesus, our King, sovereign over the storm. And in that view, we can rest. We can even share a meal <laughs> and relax in your presence. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, guys. So let's dive into this. Um, I chose this text uh, for this morning in particular. Uh, well, I should say it probably, I think I'm going to circle back next week and deal with some stuff I'm not going to look at this week, kind of the tensions between the sovereignty of God and our responsibility that's brought out in certain places. I don't have time to deal with that today. That may be next week. But I chose to kind of look at this uh, story in Acts 27 in particular because I have this sense that we're probably all feeling a bit like Paul and his shipmates at this point in our lives, right? Um, it feels like... Uh, uh, perhaps we've been kind of lost at sea. We've been uh, adrift in the currents. We've been kind of tossed by the waves. The wind is blowing. We're turned around. We don't know up or down, left or right, what's going on. We're not sure if we're going forward or we're going backward. And we don't even really know how exactly we got here in the first place. It's been a crazy couple of months, uh, I think, all of us would agree, and we've all experienced some of that in one way or another. But in, in my estimation, it seems like we have gone from life as normal to life as we've at least never known it before, almost overnight. It was just this rapid change of events, and I was recently just um, cleaning up my 
email inbox. And as I was doing that, uh, I, I was seeing some of the emails between John uh, Tolu and myself as this was initially going down, and we're trying to decide what to do. And it was just, I mean, I don't want to say humorous, but it was ridiculous. How we're like, okay, we've got a plan. No, wait, this new information came in. Okay, we got this plan. All right, no, wait, new information came in. Okay, now requirements. Okay, now they're saying we can't meet. No, now it's just 10 people. Okay, maybe we'll just know now it's all off entirely, and we have no idea what's going on. And it was happening in the course of just hours, you know, maybe a few days. And you're just feeling like, man, this is, this is blurry-eyed pace. I can't keep up with this. And it's disorienting. It's crazy. And I know in one way or another, we've all been experiencing this sort of thing lately. And so my sense was, man, if I were to ask you, how would you describe uh, the last couple months of your life, uh, going through this COVID-19 crisis stuff, how would you describe this? My, my, my guess is, is that when we come to a text like Acts 27 and read this story, my guess is we may say, man, my life these past couple months has felt something like this. <laughs> it's felt something like what Paul must have been feeling here, like I'm, I'm stuck on a ship in a storm at sea, like I don't know what is going, there's no ground, there's no bearings, there's no stars or sun, I don't, I don't see, I don't get it, I feel lost, I feel like I'm going down, it's just madness, and if that's true, if that's where you are, if that's what you're feeling, or what you've been experiencing, um, then I think this text will prove to be so helpful for us. Um, because really, in this story, what we see, what we learn, is kind of how God meets us in this place of chaos and, and, and moves us through it. How, how and why we can be unafraid. Uh, that's the sort of stuff we start to see. And so there are three things on the agenda for this morning as I kind of make my way through this text, this narrative. Uh, I want to look at first the chaos. That's kind of verses 1 through 20. Second, the comfort. That's verses 21 through 32. And then third, the calm, verses 33 through 44. So the chaos, the comfort, and the calm. Um, now, I should say as well that if you benefit from being able to see my flow of thought and some of the headings and things, you can find uh, the manuscript that I'm preaching from in one of those tabs that has kind of the worship guide and the notes. There's a link to this if it helps you. But the chaos, the comfort, and the calm, let's get to work. So first, the chaos, verses 1 through 20 is what I'm going to kind of sum up here. My main goal in this first heading, I'm going to kind of try to go as quickly as I can, because my, my main goal here is just to kind of set the stage. I know when I read that text, there's a lot of stuff there. We don't necessarily, we get lost in the details. I'm going to bring some of the details out. Make sure we see the chaos that Paul is uh, experiencing. Make sure we get just how nutty this whole situation would have been for him. Uh, but before I can kind of get us into Acts 27, let, let me make sure we're caught up with, with kind of where we're at in the narrative of the book of Acts as a whole. The book of Acts, just to kind of sum it up in a, in, a, in a line, is essentially about uh, how Jesus, uh, now 
You know, he, de he died on the cross. He's risen up from the grave, and now he's ascended to the Father. Now, he, in the book of Acts, pours out his spirit upon his people, the church. And then he uses the church by way of his spirit to bring the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's really the, the movement of the book of Acts. It's Jesus uh, crucified, risen, ascended, pouring out the Spirit now coming down, the church going out with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And Paul, who is featured uh, significantly in Acts 27, the guy who really the story is about, uh, Paul is kind of the, the significant, although unsuspecting, and we wouldn't have at first thought he'd be this key figure in the book of Acts, but he becomes that. From uh, chapter 8 on to the end of the book, it's really essentially all about Paul, his conversion, and then his missionary endeavors. Um, and so when we come now to chapter 27, we're nearing the end of the book. There's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. We're nearing the end of the book, and Paul's been on at this point many missionary journeys. His third one essentially just came to an end there in Jerusalem, and it, and it ended badly, you could say, but he, he knew it was going in this direction. He, he, he nearly gets killed by the Jews there in Jerusalem. Then he's imprisoned by the Romans for a couple of years. Uh, he's transferred to Caesarea just to keep him safe from the Jews who wanted to kill him. And then he appeals his case to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, Paul says, listen, I want my case to be tried before Caesar, to be heard before, by Caesar there in Rome. That's really what sets up this ship, um, this sailboat ride, you could say, to uh, Rome. Uh, but Paul there is not trying, as he's kind of saying, uh, hey, I want Caesar to hear my case. He's not trying to vindicate himself. He's not trying to get acquitted. He's trying to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he knows, man, if I get to Rome, I get to preach the gospel on one of the biggest stages. Uh, well, on the biggest stage of his day. And so that really is what we pick up then as we come towards uh, Acts 27. The Holy Spirit back in Acts 19, 21 said, you've got to go to Rome. And then Jesus himself back in Acts 23, 11 said, you've got to go to Rome. And then now here we see Paul is going to Rome. It's happening. He boards a ship with other prisoners, sailors, soldiers, and he's headed to Rome. It's happening. And then everything goes crazy. It just goes wild. It seems like it's just falling apart. Um, they are going now, I should say it, at first it seems on this journey just to be kind of, oh, somewhat mild. Somewhat mild setbacks, not too big of a deal. A few things that are inconvenient, but will be all right. Uh, they're kind of traveling from Caesarea up the kind of Mediterranean coast, stopping in various ports along the way as they make their way to uh, Italy and Rome. But here's what we start to see. Something's not going quite right. Verse 4, uh, Luke, who's traveling with Paul, it would seem, because he's the author of, of the book of Acts, and says, we... Uh, but Luke writes in verse 4 that the winds were against us. So, man, the winds aren't blowing in the right direction here. 
Then in verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go any further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Then verse 8, it was with difficulty that we came to a place called Fair Havens. So things are not going smoothly at this point. In fact, This opening stretch of the journey seems to have taken uh, more time than they anticipated, so much more that now the winter months are upon them, and and these are the sort of months when you would just pack up your sailboat, you would just let it harbor, let's forget about that until the sea is is, is calmer uh, and spring uh, comes back into view. So the winter was the time when the seas were treacherous and uh, they were unfit for sailing. Paul... Uh, having been in numerous shipwrecks actually before this because of his missionary journeys, he, he catches on to the fact that, man, this is not going to go well. He sees the writing on the wall, as it were, and in verse 10, he speaks up with a warning. Sirs, he says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and, and the ship, but also of our lives. He goes, man, I, I, this could end in disaster for us. I've seen this play out before. It's not looking good. This could be the end. But these guys don't listen. He's just a prisoner. Why should we care? He's just a religious zealot. Why should we care? Let me listen to the owner of the ship and the pilot of the ship. And so they take advice that way, and they decide, no, no, no. Uh, We don't want to be stuck in this harbor for the winter. Let's go someplace better. Let's try to make it to Phoenix, uh, a harbor of Crete. And it's here where especially everything just kind of dissolves into chaos. Uh, Everything just dissolves into chaos. We read verse 14 of a tempestuous wind that pushed them out of the way from uh, out out of uh, kind of out and away from the land. Okay, so this wind comes down from the land, pushing them out into the open waters. And then verse 15, they're given way to it and were driven along. And then verse 18, we were violently storm-tossed. And we read that there's so much, uh, uh, they were so violently storm-tossed that they now decide, man, we're perhaps probably, we're taking on water and we need to just start getting rid of our stuff to lighten the load so that we can get to lift this ship up because it feels like we're going to go under. And so they start jettisoning the cargo and the tackle, verses 18 and 19. All the stuff Paul said was uh, going to happen seems to be starting to happen. And then probably the most bleakest of all statements comes in verse 20. Uh, and uh, Luke writes this, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So, okay, man. Paul said we were going to lose our cargo. He said we were going to lose the ship. <laughs> that stuff's already starting to happen. He also said we're probably going to lose our lives. We've abandoned all hope. It looks right now with no light, storm settled in over top of us, like it's over. And really, I've, I've just been recounting all of this here, making sure you see it to get to this point uh, where I could just simply say, man, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, uh, man, there's no sun in my sky? 
There are no stars. I come out at night and it's just black. Wind is howling around me. Things I had hoped in, stuff I'd been planning, where I was trying to go from A to B, whatever. The dots aren't connecting and this ship is going down. Have you ever felt utterly hopeless? Are you feeling that way, perhaps even now? If that's you, then I just wanted to invite you to sit back and watch how this narrative plays out. Watch what happens next. Watch how our God intervenes. So we move then from the chaos to the comfort, verses 21 through 32. In verse 21, everything in the narrative kind of starts to to shift. It kind of hinges here. Uh, And we begin by kind of reading what what appears to be a a subtle rebuke, or maybe even not so subtle rebuke from Paul to these guys. And he says this, since uh, they, or Luke writes this, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, to be clear, I, I don't think this is an instance where he's trying to like rub their faces in like, like, a, like a little toddler, like I was right and you're wrong, or like we kind of see on politics going on on the news with, between politicians these days. I was right and you were wrong. And I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. I think Paul is trying to establish credibility because he's about to lay down another statement. He's about to make another prediction, or even we might say, uh, as we'll see, he's about to make a prophecy. Something even more firm is about to come out of his mouth, and he's saying, please, listen to me. Pay attention to what I am about to say. He goes on in verse 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you. I know you're worried about your your lives. I know you're thinking there's no hope. Listen, I am here to tell you there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Don't get too attached to the ship. It's going down. But you, no, no, no. You're going to stay. You're going to stay up. You're going to stay afloat. You're going to get back to ground, solid ground with me. And we look at that and we go, Paul, how, how can you know that? How can you say that? Remember, I mean, you and I, are you're probably sitting here watching this from your couch or something. They were hearing Paul say this while they could barely make out his words because the wind of, from the tempest and the waves and all this were howling around. What did you say? We're not going to die. Are you kidding me? How do you know that? How can you be so bold as to say that? Against all odds, he would say, our lives are going to be preserved. How can you know? Well, he goes on, verses 23 and following. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So listen, it's still not going to be pretty. The, the God and his angels aren't going to come and kind of lift this, this ship up and kind of let us land safely. In our, no, no, no. It, you realize, I mean, they talk about how the, the ship is just breaking apart and they're getting to shore, but by planks of wood. And I remember uh, Britt Merrick, when he was down in Santa Barbara, said he thinks uh, uh, 
Uh, this is probably the first instance of, of surfing uh, ever recorded, and it certainly was the, uh, the uh, only instance of surfing in the Bible. So if you're a surfer, there you go. But we're going to make it. We're going to make it. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be rough. But we are going to make it because my God said we will. So take heart. Do not be afraid. Now, when it comes to being unafraid in fearsome circumstances, in, in what should be terrifying circumstances, uh, I want to kind of... Uh, uh, kind of clue into this, kind of listen in, lean into this and go, wait, why? Why can we be unafraid? How can we be unafraid when all around my soul gives way? Well, I think in what Paul brings out here, there are two particular things that kind of caught my attention and I wanted to uh, bring your attention to as well. Uh, two things I see that allow us to be unafraid even in fearsome circumstances. One, belonging. And two, destiny. Belonging and destiny. So first, belonging. I wonder if you noticed this. Uh, for some reason, it leapt out at me. But uh, there in verse 23, uh, Paul speaks about himself when he's kind of trying to get these, uh, these sailors and other people to kind of listen up and calm down. He speaks about himself here just in passing, but I think it's very insightful. And he says this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. To whom I belong. And right there, I just stopped and thought, my goodness, <laughs> Paul knows that he belongs to God, belonging. There's this sense of, I am God's, and in that, there's this incredible security. There's this incredible stability. Even in chaotic times, the God who is above all things is the one to whom I belong. There may be no stars to navigate by. There may be no sun uh, to see in the day, but there's this lamp in, in the apostle's heart, as it were, that, that get, keeps things lit for him, that keeps, keeps him out of darkness and in the light, and that's namely, I'm his. The God to whom I belong. Um, now, it's a beautiful reality. Those of you that know God through Christ, you know, man, that is a comforting thing to realize, man, I belong to him. But I realize that for some of us, uh, whether that we're, we're not yet follower of Christ or we still kind of have some of the, the world's kind of mentality in us, and Christ is working on that, uh, this idea of belonging, I think we can kind of balk at it, this language of almost what would seem to be like ownership. It, it, it kind of rubs us the wrong way. It, it, it feels like a uh, a signal of, of, of our weakness, right? It, it feels kind of dehumanizing, humiliating, subjugating. Uh, the idea that I belong to him, it, it, it reminds me of things like servitude or slavery. And especially here in America, man, it just feels contrary to the American way and spirit. Like, no, uh-uh. We have independence, right? And I, 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 I think, I don't know how, you, how many of you are familiar with this flag, probably most of you, but uh, 
though we may not still fly the, the Gadsden flag on our flagpoles, I think it's there in our hearts nonetheless. Um, the, the Gadsden flag was that, uh, maybe I'll help you kind of picture it, it's, it's bright yellow, there's that coiled rattlesnake on it that's like ready to strike, and then there's the all caps, you know, uh, words underneath that says, you know, don't tread on me. It was the flag that I think was designed during the uh, American Revolution as we were kind of throwing off the yoke of the British. And it's kind of captured, I think, our spirit and mentality ever since, which is like, listen, who are you to tell me what to do? We will not be owned by anyone. We will not belong to anyone. We will not be commanded or overseen. No, no, no. You Don't tread on me. And we say that to, to, to one another. We say that even, you know, to our leaders. There's a lot of people picketing right now, you know, all around the country because they feel like they've been tread on. And I understand some of that. But you, you know what I'm saying? That spirit of, nah. -uh. We say that to one another. We say it to our leaders. And we even say it to God. We even say it to God. We, we won't be owned. We won't be possessed we will not be controlled or directed by another. We're going to be our own boss. We're going to be captain of our own souls. We're going to control our own destiny and fates. We're going to be free. We're going to be free. But, but here's the thing. In our passion for independence and freedom, even from God, the tragic irony is that we end up becoming slaves to all manner of things. As we pursue our freedom from everything, we end up enslaved to all sorts of things. So we end up uh, becoming slaves to our jobs, slaves to our sexual preferences and pleasures, slaves to our Facebook personas. Got to keep it up. Got to make sure people see what I want them to see. Slaves to our comforts and luxuries, slaves to our pocketbook and possessions. We uh, won't be owned by anything. But if we're honest and we're in tune with our own heart and the way it works, what we come to find is that we end up being owned by all sorts of things. Because we're not able to commandeer our life. We don't know how to get from point A to point, to point B. And what we realize is that whatever else we are in all of this, we're certainly not free, full of anxiety and pride and, and, and lust and a mess. And Paul shows us here that the only way to truly find freedom, stability, security, peace in heart is actually to belong to another, namely to belong to God. So we often live our lives kind of like these sailors on this ship where it's like, man, I've got to figure it out and we try our best, right? We're doing, okay, drop the anchor, do this. And at the end of the day, we lose hope because we can't figure out how to navigate. We end up losing it. But with Jesus, what we find is that though we lose our life for his sake, though we lose our life for his sake, we end up finding it. Right? We end up finding it in him in the end. Um, one thing to kind of bring out on this before I, 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 I close, close this little uh, point up is I think sometimes the, the, 
the difference between what we fear this ownership means uh, and, and what it truly means to be owned by God, I, I think the way we can kind of allay some of those fears uh, it actually is to show us how we got uh, to be gods or to belong to God in the first place. Um, when it comes to being this, this language of ownership in the world, I mean, I get why we'd be concerned about it because here it's like, man, your master, your boss, your whatever, man, they're just after you to get from you. They want to exploit you to their own benefit. That's what we understand of this idea. So belonging to another just sounds like, eh, no way, don't tread on me. You know, Great Britain or whatever, they just wanted to get stuff from America. They were hoping to get, you know, money or taxation, whatever it was. And the same sort of thing with our bosses and our politicians. Are there good guys with good hearts? Yes, probably so. But by and large, we feel that. I'm just being exploited. It doesn't sound good. But... That's not what this relationship of belonging to God is like at all. And to get that, all we have to do is remember how we became his in the first place. He didn't purchase us with money or stuff. He purchased us with his own blood. So Paul says in Acts 20, 28, God obtained, or in the Greek, purchased the church with his own blood blood. I mean, you see that. You, you see what this means, that, 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 that God here is not looking to get from you. He's not coming in and saying, man, I got to make a profit on this. I got to exploit. I got to take advantage. I got to pillage. No, listen, it's the exact opposite. He comes in in Christ and says, listen, how about you exploit me? How about you pillage me? How about you rob from me, subjugate me, put me in chains, put me to death so that I can give my people life? And it's by way of his blood that you and I are purchased and, and, and can say with Paul, we belong to him. So that makes all the difference, man. He's trying to give to you in this relationship, not take or exploit. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You weren't purchased with stuff or money. You were purchased with the bleeding heart of Jesus laid his life down to get a hold of you. And what's awesome here, this word, this word ransomed, Lutrao in the Greek, it means to free. Hear that? To free by paying a ransom. Lutrao means to free by paying a ransom. That's what ransom means. It means I'm going to pay money to set this person free. And here's what I want you to get. This means, as we've been saying quite paradoxically, in the very same moment with the blood of his son, God is both purchasing you that you might belong to himself and setting you free that you might no longer be enslaved to sin and the things of this world. Did you hear that? 
to be purchased by God, that you belong to him, and to be set free are, are the same thing. It takes place in the same action as the son gives his life and sheds his blood. It is not only the purchasing of you, it is the payment of your ransom so that you go free. The freedom that we want is found, ironically, in coming into this sort of belonging relationship with God to be owned by him, to be his. It's a good thing, and there's freedom that's found in it. This is why, for example, Paul can say what he does in Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So Christ died on the cross so you'd belong to him. But he's not done with saying what's going on here, what the purpose of all this is to him who's been raised from the dead. Now here he goes, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So Jesus dies for us to purchase us that we may belong to him, but it doesn't end there. He wants us to belong to him so that he can help us bear fruit for God, so that, so that we can actually start to find in our lives where just thorns and yuck was there. Now all of a sudden there's fruit and freedom and peace. I mean, remember what the fruits of the Spirit are. Peace, patience, kindness, joy, everything you're after and trying to do an end run around God to get, he gives it to us in Christ when we come into this relationship of belonging to him by way of the blood. And when you get this, there's no reason to be afraid in anything. You belong to God. He's got you for good. And this really dovetails into the second idea I mentioned that Paul bring, or that's brought out in our narrative, and that's this idea of destiny. So belonging and destiny. Um, this piece comes out especially in what the angel says there to Paul. I wonder if you caught it. Verse 24, do not be afraid, Paul. Why? Why shouldn't I be afraid? Everything's going crazy. Why shouldn't I be afraid? Everyone else is. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. You must. You must. You're going to stand before Caesar in Rome. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul had heard from the Holy Spirit and he'd heard from Jesus. Hey, man, you got to get to Rome. You're going to testify about me there in Rome. And now here this angel comes in the dark of night to reiterate that promise and say, listen, it's going to be fulfilled. None of this is going to throw that into question. God's purpose for you, brother, is going to come to pass. He set his hands on you for this work. He's going to bring it to completion. Therefore, don't be afraid. So what we see is that when uh, in Christ we come to belong to God, we also uh, come to find that we've, we've been given a particular purpose. And a destiny, as it were, from him. So belonging and destiny kind of go together. We come into this deep abiding relationship with him, and he sets us on a mission. He has a plan. He has a purpose for us, and he will help us fulfill it. 
So when I'm talking about this idea of destiny, I'm actually, according to our text, I'm not talking necessarily just about, hey, he's going to get us safely to heaven or the new heavens and new earth and to live with him in glory. That's true, yes and amen. But I actually am thinking, given the details of our text, it looks like he's talking about, man, that the stuff I have planned for you to fulfill here on earth, here and now, the good works that I've got for you to do, man, they're going to be, they, they must be fulfilled. I'm going to see to it that we fulfill this. It's like what David cries out in Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. He's saying, you put your hands on me. You started this work. You fulfill it now. Fulfill your purpose for me. You're going to do it. We're going to get to watch that happen. I thought here of how Paul speaks of himself kind of in this light in Galatians 1, 15 through 16. He says this, He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So I wonder if you caught it, uh, belonging and destiny. They kind of come together in this package deal. Like he set me apart even before I was born, set grace upon me, brought me to himself. I am his. And then he said, I've got a plan for you. Here and now, you're going to be a witness to the Gentiles. And of course, part of the Gentiles that God had in mind there was clearly Rome, getting to Rome. And so we see this idea really strung throughout the scriptures. Uh, we could talk about so many different examples, whether you wanted to go to Joseph or Esther or Jeremiah or Jonah or John the Baptist, but what I thought maybe would be good to do, since we're probably prone to say, yeah, but those are Bible guys. Those are characters from the scriptures. Those are, of course, they're big Bible key figures. God's not doing this for me. There's no must. We, we must fulfill this. We, we, we're going to do this for me. He doesn't have a plan for my here and now. He may let me into heaven. I don't think he's got a purpose or a destiny, Nick, for me here, does he? Well, because of, of this, I, I wanted to take us to Ephesians 2.10 to show you that it's not just something for the Paul or the whatever. And these, Remember, these are just ordinary guys, too. <laughs> All the biblical characters, read the stories. They're full of messed up stuff, just like you and I. But Ephesians 2.10, we see that, that Paul had just gotten done discussing how, really, uh, God and Christ came to take ownership of us as his people through the blood and grace and all this. And then he goes on to talk about destiny. And he says this, Ephesians 2.10, we, which includes you and I, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you hear that? God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I don't have time to kind of build all that out. I don't even fully know what all that means, but here's what I gather. He has stuff for you and I to do. He's prepared it beforehand. He set his hand on you. We are his new creation, his workmanship. He's built us up to this, and he's going to fulfill that purpose in and through us, which means even now, COVID-19 and the, sh the shipwreck, storm, whatever that we are facing can't stop his purpose for your life. 
It can't stop uh, your destiny, your reason for being here, your mission on this planet. If you're still here, he still has a plan for you, and he is moving that plan forward. Don't be afraid. Uh, His purposes aren't sidelined by all of this. Even if your job is going under, even if your finances are thinning out, even if your plans are failing, his plan for you is not. In fact, this may be what we find one of the ways that he pushes that plan for us forward. The image in my mind, and I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be helpful or not or just confusing, so you'll have to you have to stick with me on it. The image in my mind is that we are essentially on a ship within a ship. What I mean is this. By the, the first ship, I'm talking about a ships like the one in Acts 27. Ships that feel chaotic and crazy. And like we're, we're out of control. And it's, it's going nowhere but down. Okay. We're on that ship. We feel it sometimes, maybe feeling it right now. Man, I'm on that ship. Yeah, we are. But we're on a ship within a ship. And what I mean by this is there's another captain of an even bigger ship. And by this, I'm talking about like the capital S uh, ship, if you will. The, the one that God commandeers, the one that God captains, the one that God is directing. And however crazy everything feels up here on these little ships and the circumstances in our lives, God is still commandeering and driving something forward for you and I. He is still at the helm. It's not out of control. You're in a bigger, broader, deeper ship. You're in His, and He's moving it to His good and desired end. And what we see with Paul here, I think, is that God graciously, in a night of probably turmoil and anxiety, is coming to him and this angel and and, and, and saying, listen, I know the lowercase s ship, the little ship that you're on, looks crazy. It looks horrible. But he drives him down to that ship within, uh, that's underneath it all. To the, to the, capital S ship. It says, listen, but don't be afraid. You must, you must testify before before Caesar. You must get to Rome. You're not going to lose your life, and I'm going to give you all these brothers as well. And so there's this sense where, you know, I kind of thought about Mary and Martha for some reason at this moment. I don't know if you know that story. But it's like God's trying to move, kind of like he is with with Martha, trying to get her to to come into that space with Mary. That's what he's kind of doing with Paul in this text. Where, man, for Martha, it feels like there's so much to do. There's so much going on. I've got to scramble and get it, you know, figure it out. And she's living on that lowercase s ship, right? And then God is going to try to say, no, Martha, let's get you over here with Mary sitting in that ship beneath the ship. The the, the bigger picture, the one that says, listen, God has this. I I just want to hear what Jesus is saying. I can have a calm even in the midst of the crazy. And I suppose that's where I'm going with this. When you understand um, that God is in control, that you're on a ship within a ship, and all of a sudden, man, it, it, while it doesn't make your 
uh, it doesn't make you any less responsible. It doesn't mean you just get to kind of now coast and not, not, not you know, do anything, which is what we'll talk about uh, next week when we look at verse 31 in particular and what that means. But what, it's certainly, what we certainly understand from this is it means there, there, there can be a calm in your life, that there can be a peace even in the midst of crazy, that you can be marked by a notable calm. And that really leads us to uh, the thing that I wanted to close with. Uh, we've seen the chaos. We've seen the comfort as it came to Paul there. And now we just close with this idea of the calm in verses 33 through 44. Um, when the storm hits your life, if you're anything like me, my guess is that what you find is that you typically get more snappy. You get more irritable. Maybe, depending on your personality, you get more depressed or hopeless or down. Maybe you get more angry or frustrated or aggressive. What's happening in those moments is, is we're living in the lowercase s, ship. We're, we're living like these sailors and soldiers here, dropping anchors, figuring it out. we got to do this, and, and, and lifting the sails and jettisoning the cargo, and come on, we can do it. And you're freaking, you don't have time for anybody else, and they're all just in your way. Can't they tell that you're stressed? Right? But then God wants to get us into, wants us to live in that ship beneath the ship. He wants us to learn to live there. He wants us to be able to, to, to relax. And when we get to that place, suddenly we find we have time for other people. We're not as impatient with them or angry. But we can hear them because we know God has us. He's trying to do that. There's this calm. And the way this calm plays out in our text in particular is, is through this image of a meal. So I wonder if you noticed this, but read verse 33 with me and I'll, I'll show you. Um, as Dale, I'm going to kind of read verse 33, I think, through verse uh, 36, and then I'll, I'll bring it to a close. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now, undoubtedly, what we understand is they hadn't eaten to this point because, man, who can eat when you feel like your life is over? They're, they're trying to figure it out. They're, they're rushing around. There's no time to eat. There's no time to sleep. But then the promise comes in. Then the word from God comes in to Paul about belonging and about destiny. And, and you don't need to be afraid. And suddenly the fear, the terror is replaced with peace. Suddenly, Paul can eat, and he invites these guys to eat as well. The promise comes in, and, and they actually benefit from it as well. He says, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when that promise comes in, suddenly you can stop. Suddenly you can eat. Suddenly you can rest. They're brought from the lowercase s ship down into that uppercase S ship and, and everything shifts in their hearts. They know God has them. The, the, the phrase in my mind at this point is they can Sabbath even in the storm. 
You see, you don't just Sabbath when everything around you is good. If you really believe that God is in control, that you're, that you're uh, on a ship within a ship, and he's moving it, and it's going to be okay, you belong to him, he's going to fulfill his purpose for you, hey, you can Sabbath even in the midst of a storm. You can look totally crazy. I mean, think about this. Enjoying a meal, even while it looks to everyone else's eyes like the ship is going down. And he cracks the bread over and says, come on, everybody enjoy. Paul is able to think not just about himself, but about others, inviting them in. You should eat too, man. You look emaciated. Come on in. Let's eat. My God has us. It's going to be fine. I belong to him. He's got a plan for my life, and he will fulfill it. Let's sit. Let's kick back. Let's enjoy this. It's crazy. It's awesome. And I suppose this is where I wanted really to leave you and leave us. You're going to thank me for this. You can thank me for this later, but here's the practical application for the week. Are you ready? I'm going to challenge you to do this. This is it. I'm talking about, hey, man, you got to go be persecuted in Rome. Hey, you got to go to these, all these other things. Now, here's, here's what I want you to do. You ready? Eat a meal. Sit down and truly enjoy a good meal. Maybe with those, you know, your family, those you're, you're uh, sheltering in place with, or if we're still not able to kind of gather with others, perhaps over Zoom with a close friend or someone that you love or someone that you're ministering to, care about them. Man, around the table, try to live out by faith the reality that man, you don't have to worry about tomorrow. And instead, start to engage in conversation with them and give thanks to God for the food. And Don't wait. Here, here's the key. Don't wait until you have everything in line. Don't wait until the stock market starts rising up again. Don't wait until you got your ducks in a row. Don't wait till the wind quiets down. Don't wait till the sun comes back out. Right there in the ship, stuck in that thing, in that storm, at sea. Enjoy a meal to the glory of God because he has you. He's going to keep you. He's going to fulfill the good purpose that he has for your life in Christ. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promise to us. And we know that it came at the cost of your own life. That every promise is yes and amen to us in Jesus, but the only way that happened is because he took our side of the, the curses and the wrath that we deserve. We thank you for Calvary. We thank you for the Son. We thank you that we've been purchased by his blood, that our eyes have been opened, that we've come into your family, that we belong to you. We thank you that you have good works prepared for us even now to walk in. And I pray that, Lord, this week you'd give your people that calm, even in the midst of the storm. I pray that you'd help them to have a good meal with others may be able to think about someone else's problems beside their own. may be able to move towards in love because they know you've moved towards them in love and you have them. God, we want to celebrate even. We want to rejoice on the near side of the harbor because you're going to get us there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, with that, I would invite you to join me and others in the after party where uh, we'll probably sing a song or two, uh, lift our voices up to God, say some prayers, maybe even uh, ask, answer any questions that you have on the text or reflect a little bit on today's message. But uh, I guess other than that, you guys are released. Have a wonderful Sunday and a wonderful three-day weekend. I hope to see you again soon. Bye.